Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desire to see what you see. And did not see it. But to hear what you hear, and did not hear Lord, with the words of my mouth, with the meditation of all of our hearts here this morning, pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and redeemer and Holy Spirit, would you open the eyes of our hearts this morning, so that we would worship you, so that we would learn from you, and we would see you, Jesus. And it's in your name we pray this. Amen. When I played tennis in high school, my coach would kind of hover in the distance behind the chain link fences. But every once in a while, uh, usually when I was getting beat, he would stop hovering and he would sort of sneak up to the chain link fence and kind of hook his fingers in it like this, kind of lean forward. And that was my cue to stop what I was doing and kind of walk to him. And hear what he had to say. Usually, what he had to say was one thing. He would say, Joe, you're off here. You're just off here. And every time it would be something that I didn't see or notice as I was playing. But because he was in the distance, he could help calibrate me to what it is that we had been working on all week. Well, in our study of James, I compared the biblical idea of wisdom to recalibrating a car clock. I don't know if you remember that. If you have an older car, you constantly have to recalibrate your car clock to some kind of standard, like your phone. But if your car is like mine, it won't take long for your car clock to get off track. One minute off today becomes five minutes off in a month, becomes ten minutes off later on down the track. And soon you're just driving in a different time zone, really. Uh, but if your car's like, uh, you know, if your car's new, you, you sort of don't have that problem, which I'm discovering in my wife's car. Because it automatically calibrates all the time. The point is we need to calibrate. And we constantly need to recalibrate. Not just our clocks, but anything in our life that has an ultimate standard. So if you love to cook and you have an oven, you have to recalibrate your oven thermometer or else you'll burn your food or it'll come out uncooked. 
If you have a dehumidifier, you need to recalibrate the hygrometer on there or else you will have mold in your basement. If you have a guitar, you have to recalibrate the strings. Your A note has to be 440 hertz for it to be in tune and to be able to play with others and to not sound awful. Well, the same is true about Christianity and our faith. Christianity is something, I think, that can take a life of its own. So we often need to recalibrate. We often need to reset our hearts and our minds to what we sing in the hymn. These things are prone to wonder. Theologians in the 16th century had a Latin phrase for this. They said, semper reformanda, which is just a Latin way to say always reforming, which we could actually translate to always recalibrating. We need to constantly recalibrate ourselves to what it is that God has revealed about himself and about how the world he made works. It's a constant, it's a simple thing. It's an always thing that we always have to do. And let's be honest, I think we need this more than ever right now. In this cultural moment, in this moment of our lives, these past two years have been super disorienting. Amen? Amen. Amen. Some of us may not even know what it means to be a Christian anymore. We don't really even know what we think anymore. And we're checking out. Others of us are sort of uh, lost and looking for something solid. And they might be checking in to church for the first time in their life. No matter where you are on your spiritual journey, no matter where you are with this, we all have this in common. We need recalibrate. Now is the time. That's why I'm excited about this sermon series as we're learning, just, just getting down the brass tacks about what it is to follow Jesus, what it is to do this, because it will reorient, it will recalibrate our hearts and minds when we need it most. I'm very excited about the Apostles' Creed Sunday School. Because let's just get down to the basics and let's just recalibrate, amen? What is it to be a Christian? What is it to follow Jesus? And I actually think this morning is a great passage for us in this way, because in the very first verse of chapter 10, verse 1, we didn't read this passage, but you can look at it now, and you see what happens. Jesus sends out a team of 72 disciples on mission. And we see in our passage that they have returned from this mission, this short mission, and they give a report to Jesus. And, they, uh, and this gives Jesus, I think, an opportunity as my coach hooks his fingers around the chain link fence and he sort of leans in and says, this is, this is what's going on as well, it's going well, this is what's going on in these tweets. This is exactly what Jesus sees in this moment as his disciples return. It's a coaching moment. It's like the halftime talk. If you've ever been a part of those, if you've ever given one of those. We see Jesus clarifying things. That's what's happening. He's recalibrating their sense of the mission. He's recalibrating their sense of the journey that they've just started with Jesus. And if they need it, how much more do we need it? <laughs> Amen? How much more do we need this? We can allow Jesus, even in this passage, to recalibrate our hearts towards the journey that he would call us on. And what he does in this passage is at least three things. He calibrates our journey to three important things. The first thing is this, security. 
He wants his disciples to be sure about this. And I want you, as, as your pastor, to be sure about this as well. When you're walking with Jesus, you're on a journey into security. You can even say you're on a journey with security. We see Jesus doing this in this passage. He's calibrating the disciples to two things. The reality that they are secure in the victory of Jesus and that they are secure in the faithfulness of Jesus. And so first, Jesus wants them to know and wants you to know that you are secure in the victory of Jesus. In verse 17, the disciples come back from their mission and what are they excited about? They're excited about the fact that demons are subject to them in the name of Jesus. Jesus gave them this authority before he sent them. They go in the name of Jesus. This happens. It's kind of a big deal. In the supernatural realm, demons are very powerful. And they come and they're, they're rejoicing about this reality. What you said would happen, happened, Jesus. This is amazing. But what Jesus does is he turns their excitement into a teaching moment. This would be like the coach at halftime talking to somebody, a team who is winning. Okay, we're winning, but I still have something to tell you. And that's how Jesus approaches the disciples here. Jesus, in a way, says in verse uh, seven, after verse 17, he says, yes, this happened. And then he tells them more. He says the reason, he almost gives them a reason why what happened happened. He says the reason demons are subject to to you in the name of in my name is because I am victorious over Satan. That's what Jesus is saying. In verse 18, Jesus puts it this way: I saw Satan falling like lightning from heaven. Now, let's back up a bit to the earliest pages of our Bible in the book of Genesis, in the Garden of Eden. We encounter an intruder. No, we encounter an intruder. And this intruder is a snake, and the snake deceives our parents in the garden. And it looks like, if you read chapter 1 and chapter 2 and then the beginnings of chapter 3, it looks like the serpent wins. The sin and evil reigns. And that's it. Story over. But God makes a promise in these very pages in Genesis 3, verse 15, that He will come as a rescuer into this garden and He will stamp out this intruder serpent. This rescuer, Genesis 3.15 says, will bleed in the process. But the serpent will surely die. That's what it says. And that's the promise that God gives. Well, fast forward to our passage. And I want to ask you this. Why do you think Jesus is talking about treading on snakes? Satan falling from the sky in the same breath. I know our old kids are in here having a long sermon. I want to ask you that. Why do you think Jesus is talking about treading on snakes and Satan falling from the sky? When in the book of Genesis, at the very beginning, God makes a promise that a rescuer would come and step on the snake. We need to defeat.
defeated the intruder? Could it be the reason Jesus is doing this and telling the disciples this is because he is the yes to that promise? He is the rescuer himself? Could it be that Satan is that serpent? And Jesus, like Adam, the second Adam, maybe we could call him, does what the first Adam should have done and stamps out the serpent for good? Well, this is what Jesus wants us to know. Following Jesus means we have security in his victory. He is the rescuer. He is the victorious one. Uh, this has been called Christus Victor, which is a, a fancy way of saying the victory of Jesus. Jesus comes to do a lot of things. He comes, in this case we're noticing, to defeat Satan. To defeat the enemy. What Jesus calls all the power of the enemy in our passages for you. And this victory unfolds in the Gospels. It unfolds in the wilderness. For instance, when Jesus is in the wilderness, he battles it out. And he wins. He defeats the enemy, Satan and his temptations. He defeats it with the word of God. And then it unfolds in his exorcisms. As we read the Gospels, we see Jesus casting out demons and having authority over them. Which is again an unfolding of this victory of Jesus. Which then ultimately at the cross of Jesus, that serpent is smashed forever. His tail still wags. But it is dead. Jesus wins by purposefully losing on the cross of Jesus. And in this passage, Jesus wants his followers to know that he did this for you. Because he treaded the serpent, his disciples tread the serpents. Because Jesus defeats the power of the enemy, his disciples in Jesus' name have victory over the power of the enemy. Because Jesus was hurt in our place, by, on the cross, by evil, Jesus can say to us, evil will never, ever, ever eternally hurt you. We have security in his victory. We also have security, Jesus wants us to know, in his faithfulness. Following Jesus is a journey with security in his victory. It's also a journey with security in his faithfulness. So verse 20, Jesus says, Nevertheless, don't rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And so this is the teaching moment where Coach leans into the chain link fence and he says, All right, guys. It's understandable and even appropriate that you are rejoicing about my victory. And how even the spirits are subject to you in my name. But then Jesus says, rejoice, though, in something greater, and it's this. Your name is written in heaven. He doesn't rebuke their joy, but he, he kind of elevates it. He redirects it. He elevates it to something more lasting. Casting out demons is temporary, eternally speaking. But what isn't is their secure relationship with God. That's eternal and it's secure. Their names are written in heaven. What God writes down, nothing and nobody can erase. 
So kids, have you ever written something down and you're supposed to use pencil, but instead you used pen? Has that ever happened to you in class? Teacher's like, please use a pencil because you have to erase your math work. <laughs> and then you're like, oh no, I used a pen. Can't erase it. Well, that's what Jesus is saying. When, when God puts your name in his book, it's unerasable. No take backs. Satan, the accuser, would love to erase your name. But Jesus says he's fallen like lightning. He can't do it. And so if God has written your individual name down in his book, then you are secure because God is faithful. More faithful than you are. When I was a kid, um, our neighborhood had terrible roads in our little subdivision that we grew up in in Indiana. There were potholes everywhere. And this was bad news if you liked to skateboard like I did. It was very bad news. Uh, but they were everywhere. It was a terrible, terrible thing. And uh, it was a really big deal because eventually our neighborhood association drummed up the money to repair the worst spots. Not all the roads, not, not every single road, not even an entire road. Just sort of like patchwork repair. And it was a very, very big deal. And as a homeowner now, I kind of understand like probably how the adults were feeling. They were probably rejoicing that these terrible spots were going to be smooth again. Well, as soon as the concrete was poured and smooth, and there was a spot right down at the end of my street where it was particularly bad, the kids of the neighborhood had a different idea. You know where this is going? <laughs> they saw a blank slate for writing their names in the wet concrete. And I just remember kind of catching on to the drama as a young kid, like, that, that was a big deal. That shouldn't have happened. The adults were very upset on our street about this because they were looking forward to the day when this thing would be smooth, and now it's just got footprints and handprints and, and names written all over it. And here's the thing. It took so much money and so much effort and collaboration to just get those patches done. I guarantee you that if I were to go back to my hometown neighborhood where I grew up, those names would still be there. And I kind of wonder how my friends feel about that. For the record, my name's not on there. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was one of the do If God has etched your name in this book, nothing can remove it. It's like those names in the concrete to this day. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? It's true. Satan himself cannot erase your name. It is more permanent than you realize. And if your empty hands of faith are clinging to Jesus and your name is written in heaven, you are secure. And this might be all the recalibration you need right now. As we're on a journey with Jesus, it's certain that there will be moments where we step over here, or step over here, or step over here, and keep walking. And what you need this morning, and maybe if you're listening in to the live stream this morning, what you need to hear right now is that if your name is written on heaven, then you are secure. And he is the great shepherd who will pursue you. And he is more faithful to you than you are to him. And that nothing, the victory of Jesus means that nothing can remove your name. So let me just ask you, what are you trying to find security in these days? And there might be a lot of answers 
But I want you to see that Jesus wants you to have your ultimate depth of security in his victory and in his faithfulness. It's a journey with security. It's also a journey with intimacy. This is point number two. This is a journey with intimacy. First, it's a journey with security. Second, it's a journey with intimacy. Whatever else our journey with Jesus is, it is always a journey into divine intimacy. Take a look at verse 21. In that same hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. What is happening? Well, Jesus is rejoicing in prayer, it says. And this prayer that follows off in verse 22, I think tells us something about our journey with Jesus. It tells us that it's a journey with the deepest kind of intimacy. Jesus rejoices in prayer to his Father, and look at verse 22, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to little children, or infants is the word, infants. So picture an infant, a little baby. And Jesus is praying to the Father and says in verse 22, he says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father. That's an exclusive relationship that they have. Or who the Father is except the Son. And, and that's an exclusive, another way of saying their relationship is exclusive, it's unique. There is no other relationship like it. And yet, look what Jesus says. No one knows who the Son is except you, Father. No one knows who you, Father, is except me. And anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Wow. Jesus is saying that there's zero knowledge of God unless it comes through him. Because Jesus is the Son of God. He is Emmanuel. He is God in flesh. He is the revelation of God to us. And this means if you know Jesus, then you know God. And this word knowledge, if you've been with us at home for any time, you know that I love to share that the word knowledge means more than cognitive knowledge. Or head knowledge, or brain smarts, or factual knowledge. It's the kind of knowledge that a baby infant has of their parent. In the last five years of my dad's life, I got to know him better than the 35 years prior. And what's interesting is that at the same exact time in those five years, he was sick with cancer. <clears throat> Which means that in those five years, his oncologist also got to know him very well. But his doctor's knowledge was very different than my knowledge in those five years. He was growing in biological knowledge of my dad. He was growing in medicinal knowledge of my dad. He was growing in factual knowledge of my dad. My knowledge was intimate. It was different. It was on a very different level. He was my dad. And I was his son. And when we see the word knowledge in the Bible, especially as it connects to our relationship with God, we ought to be in that territory, not this territory. Jesus wants 
to calibrate our journey with him to this kind of intimacy. The Apostle Peter actually says Jesus' followers are partakers of the divine nature. That's 2 Peter 1.4. Partakers of the divine nature. Partakers of the divine nature. One theologian defines this kind of just amazing phrase this way. Quote, we are made to share in the eternal life of God and the bond of love within the persons of the Godhead. You are wired for intimacy, friends. And here we learn that only God will satisfy that wiring, that desire. It only comes to us from Jesus, because Jesus alone, Jesus alone, can usher us into the Trinitarian love of God. We're going to talk about the Trinity in just five minutes, so put on your seatbelts. <laughs> but this is a relational knowledge of God himself. With Jesus as our brother, we have God as our Father, and we have the Holy Spirit. And this is intimacy with God, the Creator of all, through Jesus, the Son of God. Have you tasted this intimacy? Are you maybe just hungry for this intimacy? Hear Jesus say, come to me. You might have been following Jesus your whole life, and what you need to hear this morning is just simply Jesus saying, I reveal to you Father, I'm inviting you into the life of God to have intimacy. And whatever is going on in our hearts and minds with regard to Christianity or with regard to the faith or with regard to church or anything, you need to recalibrate to this divine intimacy that is on offer. That's what it's about. Okay? One more thing in the way of our time. Our journey is a journey with mystery. Number one, our journey is a journey with security. Number two, our journey is a journey with intimacy. We just talked about that. And number three, our journey is a journey with mystery. Okay, see, if you're here, I love a three-point sermon. That's what you're getting to. Three points. I also love words that sound the same. Intimacy, security, mystery. So get used to it. This is how I roll. It's a journey with mystery. That's what following Jesus means. Divine security, divine intimacy, and mystery. Just because we have security in Jesus, just because we have intimacy uh, through Jesus does not mean that we have everything figured out. Okay? There is quite a bit of mystery. Things that we can't wrap our head around in following Jesus. And Luke wants to make sure that we are aware. Two things in this text. First, the Trinity. The mystery of the Trinity. Luke wants to make sure we see this about the God of worship. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So just look at this prayer again in verse 21. At that same time, Jesus was filled with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So hang on to that. Hang on to that, Holy Spirit. And hang on to Jesus, Son of God. And what does Jesus say? Oh, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Father. This prayer is like a Trinitarian explosion. 
We don't worship three gods. We worship how many gods? One. But the God we worship is one God, three persons. I agree with theologian Michael Burry who says the Trinity can be a hard doctrine to get your head around. Can I get an amen? And yet, by affirming what God says about Himself in the Bible, I'm comforted in a couple ways. I'm going to share with you those couple reasons. Number one, it means we did not make this up. Our Trinitarian God is not something we would naturally make up. Oh yeah, one God, three persons. No. It has to be revealed to us, which it is. His self-disclosure gives me confidence in the trustworthiness of the Bible. Okay, that's number one. It means we didn't make it up. Number two is it means that God is love. Only a Trinitarian God, one God, three persons, can be fundamentally love. I said buckle through your seatbelt, so here's the moment to buckle your seatbelt. The Apostle John says God is what? Remember? Say it. You will love. God is love. God is love. The reason he can say that is because John knows that for all eternity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been in a mysterious relationship of love. If God was not Trinitarian, he would not be fundamentally love. He would be fundamentally power or something else. And so our response to God would have to be fundamentally servile. This is the point that Michael Reeves makes in his book, Delighting in the Trinity. But because God was perfectly happy in Trinitarian love before the world was made, it means his creation is not out of the need that God had. He was perfectly happy. It means his creation, therefore, is a, is a piece of art. It's an overflow of who he is. He made creation and he made you because he wanted to. Not because he needed to, because he wanted to. It was an overflow of his Trinitarian, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, love. And it means that we, his creation, are meant to relate to God, the Trinity, in love. That's how we are designed, that's how the world was meant to be. And the good news is that we don't need to fully understand the Trinity to enjoy God who is trying. There's another mystery in this text I want to talk about. And that's the mystery of God's mission. I think it's hard to wrap our heads around the fact that God is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
But it's also hard to wrap our heads around the fact that God has called folks like you and me to carry out his rescue mission. I think that is also perplexing. But that's what Jesus has done. Verse 21 said that he has revealed himself to infants. And right before this passage, he sends the 72 on a mission. He kind of says, look, I I mean, I know you guys are a ragtag group with issues. But here you go. Go on my mission. I'm entrusting the rescue mission to you. That is mind-bending. That is hard to grasp. That is, in a way, a mystery that God has hidden his mission from the wise and the powerful of the world and given it to little children and infants. That's what I'm calling the mystery of the mission. For some reason, Jesus gave uh, what he says at the end of our text, what prophets and kings long for. He gave this to infants. What prophets and kings long for, infants now have. We, as those infants, have front row seats to what they were longing for. This magnificent unfolding of God's rescue. Jesus delights in giving us access and giving us the responsibility of holding that mission. I told you about the time I got center court tickets to Championship Sunday on Wimbledon. Have you heard this story before? It's, it's one of those things that I can't make up. Here I was, this sort of smelly American backpacker walking through Wimbledon, England, uh, and, I, and up walks kind of an elderly lady with this fantastic hat, my memory serves, uh, dressed to the nine, and she gives me her ticket. I didn't deserve it. I didn't pay for it, that's for sure. But I got access to history. I got to see Martina Navratilova win like the most Wimbledons any woman has ever won. I got to see that. People long for this. That's like a bucket list item for a lot of people. And I got like a center court, like right in the middle view of it all. And I mean, if, if the camera panned across, and I'd love to maybe see if, if it did ever, you would see like suit and tie, fantastic you know, dress, and then black t-shirt and oily hair, and scraggly beard, me. And they'd say, what on earth is that dude doing there on chips? I mean, the royal box was like right there. But somehow, in some way, I got access to what the Queen of England longs to see. Jesus says it's the same with his disciples. We have access to what royalty of old, the kings and the prophets, longed to see. It's a bucket list thing for them. And they didn't get to see it with their own eyes, and yet we do. And that's amazing. It's a mystery that we get to do this. And moreover, that Jesus gives it to children, infants. Now, I just want to ask this as we close. Why would Jesus do this? Why would he delight in giving his mission, his rescue mission, over to be stewarded, to be proclaimed by infants? Well, perhaps Jack Miller is right. 
when he suggests that Jesus does this because it means his disciples will therefore rely on him and, and rely on his grace and delight in his grace. And then God's grace and power are on fuller display when broken people are his vehicle. I love these words from I. Howard Marshall. Infants are the picture Jesus gives because infants are helpless. For Jesus, the childlike and poor are not the meticulous performers of law and ritual, but the needy and downtrodden who accept the gospel. Uh, it's been said that J.R.R. Tolkien made hobbits the heroes of his epic. Spoiler alert. <laughs> For this very reason. Hobbits are like rabbits. But for some reason, Gandalf gives the hobbits the leading one. And that's what we have with Jesus. For some mysterious reason, we needy sinners have front row seats to the unfolding of what God is up to. And that is an amazing Amazing mystery that we don't need to understand, just like the Trinity, to enjoy. So, what needs calibrated for you this morning? Do you need reminded that Christianity is about the security you have in Jesus? Do you maybe need to be reminded that Christianity is about the intimacy you have with God through Jesus? Or maybe you just need reminded that you've been summoned to take part in an amazing, amazing mission. This amazing mission does not require that you have your act together. This amazing mission, if it's Jesus's, requires that you own your need. And if you like get weird and shaky when you talk to somebody about your love of Jesus, like you might think that disqualifies you to be on his mission. I think Jesus, if, he's, if what he says about infants is true, it actually qualifies you to be on his mission because you are helpless and you know it. But his power, his power rests on our weakness. And so we can go forward knowing that we are not on mission with Jesus in order to, because we're wise and understanding and awesome. We're on mission precisely because we are like infants, and he loves us there. So let's pray. Lord, would you love us in our infancy? And Lord, if we are sort of pretending we're not like an infant, Lord, would you humble us and remind us that our core feature as a disciple, as a follower of you, is our very helplessness, our infancy. Take us there, Lord. Remind us that we're secure in you. Our names are written in heaven. Remind us that we have intimacy with you, Jesus. By the Holy Spirit, we are united to him. And so we can have access to God and we can experience you, God. Not just know about you factually. And then, Lord, remind us that we're on a, mis a mysterious mission. That will win. Satan has fallen. This is a winning mission that you've entrusted us with. And so, Lord, help us to be in awe of that grace. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.